Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Catherine Clark, the author of Paris and the Cliché of History, The City and Photographs, 1860 to 1970. And the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Hi there, Catherine. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? I got into French history via French language, and I teach in the department at MIT that teaches languages. I I teach in French studies, Um, and I actually got into French history via language. So I grew up in Utah, and I learned French in high school, and learning French offered me a different world and I could be someone else when I spoke French. Um, and early on, I went to France in high school and was in Belgium in a, in a Flemish speaking part of Belgium and spoke in French to someone in a boulangerie who responded me t- to me in French. And then she responded to my classmates who spoke French to her in English. And I realized that she had in that moment thought that I was a Francophone. Um, mm-hmm. And so I really always loved that idea of being able to be someone else via the ability to speak a different language. When I was in college, I didn't want to study French. I didn't want to study history. I wanted to be a computer scientist and study political science. And I took a French conversation class and just remembered that I loved speaking French. And so I've always kind of been sucked back into studying France and studying French culture via this kind of linguistic capacity. So I ended up loving cultural history classes. I was really interested when I was an undergraduate at Swarthmore, I was really interested in history and memory. And I was fascinated by historiography, like the story of how we study the past and how that study has changed. What are the questions we ask? What are the methods we use? What sources do we look at? And so I kept coming back to history because I liked those methodological questions. Mm -hmm. And then the skill set I had was was French. 
So I ended up working on a project on Benjamin and the Passage. At the end of my undergrad, I read Vanessa Schwartz's work on the morgue and then went to grad school to work with her. And how did you get interested in the history of Paris and photography in particular? So I really came into this book and these questions from a kind of love of Paris but also a kind of, I think like a lot of French historians, once we start spending time in France, seeing a kind of underbelly, a way in which certain cliches and ideas of the city are constructed, the great contradictions that live in Paris of wealth and poverty, of kind of opportunity and people who don't have opportunities. And so I was interested in all the kind of multiple layers of the city. So at some point, Vanessa said, well, why don't you just go, it was early on in my grad school career, she said, why don't you just go and spend some time at the Bibliothèque Historique de la Ville de Paris, so Paris's historical library, and just see what you find. And what I found was a card in the card catalog for the photographs, and it had the mention FNAC on it. So FNAC, the FNAC is now a chain of multimedia megastores mm -hmm. in France. and I went to the librarian who was at the desk helping out readers. And I said to her, what is this? Why did the FNAC give photos to the library? And she said to me, oh, the FNAC gave 100,000 photos to the library. They're in the basement. They're not very interesting. <laughs> Why don't you work on 19th century photography instead? And so that's the, the FNAC contest is the last chapter of this book. And that very early on in my grad school career became this object so not only like the contest is an object of study, but the things that the librarian said to me, why isn't it interesting? Why should I work on this other thing instead? Like what makes a photo interesting? Why are the photos even there? And those became the guiding questions that drove this particular project. So this book, Catherine, pursues the history of the idea of photography and photographs as historical evidence and historical documents. And you use the term photo histories in the book. Yes, absolutely. So I became interested early on in the question, not only of how as historians today, we might use photos, but how have historians used them in the past? And when I was early on in grad school, there was a lot of discussion of the visual turn as if historians were first learning about photographs. But actually what I uncovered was over a century of the use of photos not just as illustrations, but as the very means through which we might know the past and the means through which we might tell stories about the past. Mm. And so I use the word photo histories to set these types of books apart from other illustrated books. So say uh, any, any of the books that you feature on this podcast might have a handful of photos in them. But for me, photo histories are books that begin with the questions of how is the how are the images showing the past just as much as the text, not how are they complementing the text? So I identified books that might look to a lot of people like coffee table books, big, glossy, illustrated books of Paris where the photos are doing the heavy lifting. This is kind of a huge double question <laughs> that's maybe a little unfair given all the things that you cover in, you know, a couple hundred pages uh, in a book. But just to ask you kind of in a broad sense, how you see the book, how you see yourself in conversation with the history of photography, and then the other side of it is the history of Paris. Again, huge. Sorry. 
Absolutely. No, these are these are important questions. So first of all, to, to answer the question about the history of photography, I think a lot of histories of Paris have focused on the histories of photographers. So people like Charles Marville or Eugène Adjet, some people say Adjet. So who are these people and how did they photograph the city? I was interested in recovering what meanings were ascribed to the photos they and other people took in the moment of their capture, as they circulated throughout the lifetime of the photo, but to get away from a kind of traditional art historical model that's based around single named authors and look mm. instead at a kind of field of social practice that, co- that coheres or kind of crystallizes around photographic objects. And that is absolutely something that art historians today are doing. They're studying institutions, they're studying practices. But I think a lot of what has been written in the past around photographs of Paris has been driven by biographical questions. And you could name, of course, examples that are not. So like Shelley Rice's book is absolutely not just driven by the biographical, but thinking about photographs in a moment of urban change and how the photographs are refracting those changes. So that's a kind of first thing, instead of looking at photographers to look at photographs and where they go. Um, And then I think in terms of thinking about how I'm in conversation with this huge literature about the history of Paris, Mm -hmm. it really struck me as I was reading about Paris and thinking about Paris, how often the image is used as as a metaphor for thinking about the history of Paris. So we could think about Guy Debord and and the kind of society, the spectacle, and we could think about a whole um, range of literature that talks about Paris being consumed as an image, being sold as an image, its image being shaped both through urbanization, but then also through um, its presence in the press, for example. And I wanted to know what the relationship between the metaphorical image and physical images is. Mm -hmm. Can we understand how people learned about Paris through images and how the past became not just a picture because of some changing relationship to capital, but also literally how the past was increasingly consumed in pictures? You just mentioned Debord, Catherine, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, who you're thinking with in this book in terms of I guess theorists of the image is kind of a grab bag way of referring to them and a photography in particular. So this is a book about spectacle, about affect and emotion, about space, about memory. Um, you mentioned, well, Debord, but then Sontag, Bart, Benjamin, who it turns out you worked on before. How are you working with those types of theorists and doing something other than that as well in the book? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm absolutely informed by people like Benjamin and Benjamin's conception of history as an image, right? The past flashes up. Um, But I also think that as historians, in part by focusing on theoretical and ontological explorations of photography, we start to think that photography embodies a particular thing, like a photograph is necessarily about death, as Barth writes about it. Mm. But Barth is also historically situated. And so I'm interested in theory as intellectual history, but also in, in how a reliance on those theories has kept us from exploring a range of other theorists. So someone like in my book, I, I, I devote a lot of mental and energy and pages to someone like Marcel Poet 
who was a Chartiste, so he trained at the Ecole des Chartes, which is the, the school that still trains archivists in France. And Poet had his own theories about the photograph and its usefulness as a historical document, about what it did to the historical imagination, how it acted on viewers, how it could be used by historians. And so I'm both know a lot about these theorists who much of kind of contemporary scholarship relies on for thinking about the photograph, but also want to say, well, if we don't base a study off of kind of applying or thinking through what these people have already said, but instead go looking for how a range of historical actors were theorizing the photograph, kind of what do we come up with? And, and what we come up with is a history of how Photographs have been thought through in many different ways and many different contexts, some of which does overlap with theorists who we might be more familiar with, but some of which is unfamiliar or surprising. You know, when I was reading the introduction and you brought up those obvious, I guess, na- you know, names, Sontag, Barthes, Benjamin, and, and knowing a little bit about what was coming in terms of the history that you cover in the book, I thought, oh, like they're part of the history that you're talking about, you know, I mean, Sontag was in love with France and certainly spent time in Paris. And, and it just made me think about how rooted in the history that, that you're covering in the book, the theorists that have spent so much time thinking about photography actually are. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Benjamin is friends with Giselle Freund. They're both working at the BNF together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, there was a, some version of this book was going to have a kind of each conclusion of the chapter would be about various historical turns in France and how the coffee table books for sale on the, <laughs> in the bookstores related <laughs> to those particular historical turns. And it's, it's not quite that neat. Um, but, but the, these people are definitely part of the century of thinking through images. And we've kind of, they flash up for us and, and, we, and we latch onto them, but they're very much I think, situated in a, this much longer story of intellectual engagement with photography that I'm trying to tell. So let's talk about this century and a bit uh, and the bookends of the project here. So the choice and emphasis on 1860 and then 1970, what makes those the places that you start and stop? So beginning at the end, the end is the photo contest, this photo contest done by the FNAC. Mm-hmm. So it's called C'était Paris en 1970. This was Paris in 1970, and it's a major operation to document Paris. The FNAC aims to bring in 200,000 photos. They get 100,000, 15,000 people, more over 15,000 people sign up for the contest. So that was the kind of beginning point of my research. And I tried to trace the history of that got us to a major store working with the city of Paris and the Préfecture de Police to organize this type of contest. And so I went back to 1860 when you have the first moment when photography is kind of deeply and obviously connected to the the idea that urban transformation requires documentation, photographic documentation, historical documentation in some way. And so that brings us back to 1860 and to housemanization. And housemanization is when Paris is radically reconstructed. It's not the first time Paris is radically reconstructed, but it is unique in its scale and also in the scale of the kind of historical project that goes along with it. So Mm -hmm. Houseman, the prefect of the Seine, 
says that if we're going to destroy Paris, we also need to create a museum. And so he launches the idea that will end up with the Musée Carnavale, uh, which is Paris's history museum. And that idea that you would need to have a museum of the city where people could go learn about it if you're going to destroy it seems to then go hand in hand, this idea that destruction necessitates preservation. The book, Catherine, deals with a range of historical actors from, you know, individual photographers all the way up to institutions and the city of Paris. Could you say a little bit about the different types of historical actors that you're dealing with? Absolutely. I think I began thinking about institutions. And so I started with this question that I mentioned earlier about preservation through images being tied to destruction within the city. But I also began to notice that things that happened in the city, moments of periods of trauma, uh, other types of historical change also changed what people saw in already existing photographs. And so Mm. I tried to get at people who would have been thinking about those photos and thinking about them in new ways. So institutions are an obvious place to begin if you want to think about collecting photos or even commissioning photos. So I looked principally at the Musée Carnavale and the Bibliothèque Historique de la Ville de Paris, these twinned institutions that were dedicated to city history. Uh, Mm. But I also found that those institutions weren't sufficient to tell the history that I was interested in. So I looked to other places where photo histories were being produced, where using photographs to think through history was happening. So those ended up being places like the publishing house Eschet. And Eschet is still around. They still have their image archives, which are largely photographic. They have 700,000 images. Mm. And that, I found out, was a place where a type of canon of photographic illustration was being produced in the early decades of the 20th century, where even today, or maybe not today because researchers are using a database, but they could go to the very shelves of the phototech and pull books off the shelf and see how in 10, 15 Ashet books have used the same pictures to illustrate the history of Paris. So you get a kind of canon being formed. I was also interested in other places where people were thinking about photographs. So photo collectors, amateur historians, Often amateur historians are photo collectors because they find themselves in the late 19th century collecting photos so they can look at and talk about buildings. Uh, And those same types of people who are interested in looking at and talking about buildings in the 20s and 30s start to realize that these old photos aren't just representations of buildings, they are snapshots of lost time and they start to develop theories around that. Mm -hmm. And then there are, of course, photographers whose names you'll recognize who come up in the book. So Marville, Ache, uh, Brassai, Isis. But I was also interested in how people who take photographs of Paris are engaging with the problem of historical documentation and representation. So I tracked down the American winner of an essay contest who was sent to Paris in 1951 named William Wallace. He's no longer alive, but one of his daughters scanned all of his photos for me and sent them to me. And then there are all of the photographers for the photo contest, some of them named, some of them anonymous, who were thinking about how photography could be a tool for capturing the history of the city in the moment. Do you think of the book, Catherine, as an intervention in the history of museums and the history of, well, 
archival history. I mean, I, I guess because I wasn't paying close enough attention when I've talked to you about this project before, I hadn't really put it in the category of histories of the archive. Um, do yeah. you think about it that way? I do. Um, I think it's not, you know, it's not a history of the archive in the sense that I'm going to tell you the very long history of the Archive National, but it is a history of how and when people thought that photographs should be part of historical collections. Yeah. And even in, in the history of the study collection in the museum, right? So the Musée Carnavalet in the late 19th century is collecting tons of photographs. They're not putting them on display. And I was interested in why they're not putting them on display. They're mm-hmm. very basic reasons that have to do with the fact that if you overexpose a photograph to light, you will damage it. But they're also not doing it because they don't think that photographs are very good historical evidence for a museum going public. They want images that the public sees in the museum to spark their imagination, to make them feel closer to the past in some way, to educate them aesthetically. And for my actors in the late 19th century at the Musée Carnavalet, photographs don't do that. They're too cold. They're too scientific. (laughs) So it is very much a history of how and when photos will go on display in the museum, not as art necessarily, although there is an element of aesthetic education, but as good historical documents. Mm. And the idea that we have of the kind of haunting presence of the photograph is a 20th century idea. My critics and collectors and curators don't talk about that idea until the the 30s. And it starts to operate in the 40s when there's the first big exhibit of photographs at the Musée Calmavade during World War II. Yeah, and I'm going to want to come back to that. But before we get into talking about the chapters, there's just a couple of other things I wanted to touch on with you that you really emphasize in the introduction to the book that this is a material and social history. And you talk about these three levels of meaning of the photograph. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what those are and how they help to organize your thinking in the book? Yes, that is a great question. We often think about photos as windows onto the events that they depict. So we can see, a, look at a photo and see what was happening at a certain place at a certain time. The second level at which I'm thinking about photographs is inseparable from the first, but that's also that the photo contains the history of its own production. Mm-hmm. So every photo is the history of an encounter between a photographer or at least a camera and some historical subjects be they animate or inanimate. But that's all about the photo in the moment of its capture. And I'm interested in a third way of thinking about photos that understands that photos are objects that live long beyond their moments of capture and that they circulate in the world and that the work that a photograph does extends into that circulation in the world. So someone can see a photograph and it can have an effect on them. And so how do you recover kind of where photographs go and and that type of social mm-hmm. work that they do is really this kind of third um, level of historicity, if you will, that I'm trying to get at. And so I talk about photo history, the history of photography, so the history of capture, and then also the history of photographs. Like where do they go? Where do we see them? And how do people encounter them? How much do genres matter? Uh, genres of photographs, Catherine, like, I don't know, portrait action shot. I mean, obviously over the course of the whole book, because you've got different types of photography emerging over the course of this century and more that you cover. Does that play an important role in terms of different types of photographs? Or are you predominantly looking at a specific type of photograph? 
you know, often I'm looking at street photography right. because these are the things that are the kind of most identifiable. These are the, the photos to which people gravitate as evidence of time having passed. And so street scenes, uh, the kind of petit métier or kind of small trade photographs that have become very cliched images of Paris. Um, but a lot of the people I'm interested are in are also interested in, in portraits or in uh, promotional photos for theater performances. But I think that I often track them more when they're interested in kind of architectural or street photography. I want to ask you, Catherine, about the, well, part of the title of the book anyway, and the way that you're using this term cliche. Um, yeah. Tell us about that. The use of cliche is a little bit tongue in cheek mm. because what I, I just kind of can't help but laugh at myself, like another book about the history of photography in Paris, like, come on, what a cliche. But it, it is not just a kind of self-deprecating move. It is also really very much an analytical move. And so the cliche I found to be a really productive word for the title of this project. And like all productive words for the titles of projects, it came many, many, many years into this process. Right. But so the cliche allows us to think through some really important ideas. In the origin of the word cliche is like the origin of a stereotype. So it's a word that comes from the mechanical process of printing. And a cliche is a, is a plate that is cast. It's a metal plate that is cast from movable type and images. After the invention of photography, the word cliche is also used to denote the glass plates on which the camera captures images. Mm. And then it also comes to mean in French, any sort of photographic image. So it has the idea of mechanical reproduction of not just photographic images and photographic images embedded in it. And so I wanted to capture that idea that the photographic image is linked to earlier processes mm. of printing. It's linked to the reproduction and kind of um, almost vomitous circulation of images. And that also that these images can become so familiar that we don't see their mm. histories anymore. And so the title really plays with that in order to recover what is a, a complicated history of the production and circul circulation of images. I have to ask you, Catherine, about the choice and role that the photographs in the, in the actual, in your book, play. Ah. So when you say things like 700,000 or 100,000, I think, how did she choose these photographs? And yeah, uh, yeah how, how did you think about the role of photographs in your own book. So relentlessly, tirelessly, sometimes in the middle of the night. I think a lot of the photographs that are in my book are images that stayed with me. So once I was done doing research for a particular chapter, they were the images that I thought about again and again. And actually, when I write, I often start with images and I'll put images into a PowerPoint and oh. then start also, at the same time that I'm putting my uh, notes into a Word document, so I think of them as my primary sources that I'm working with. Some of the images were just so essential to expressing the ideas that I needed. So if you look at some of the liberation images, there are older images superimposed on top of photographic images. And I can describe that image to you, but for you to see it, I think, brings home uh, what I'm talking about in an entirely different way. So there were images that were essential. I also started to see patterns in the images that I was looking at. So 
photographs started to look the same to me. And oftentimes my choice of the images in my own book are meant to make those patterns apparent to the to the reader. So for example, in the chapter about the photo contest, that's often what I'm trying to do is say, this photo is operating with a certain logic that we also see in this photo and in this photo and in this photo. There were a few images I would have really liked to have that I don't because it's hard to get the rights for 89 images or however many I have in here. And some of them I, I couldn't quite sort out. But I want readers to think about the images in my book as part of the argument, just as much as the images in my sources books are part of their argument. We've already covered a little bit of the ground here and there um, that you cover in the first chapter of the book, Imagination and Evidence, Visual History at Paris's Municipal Historical Institutions, Catherine. But I want to just zoom in on it again for a moment to just ask you to say a little bit more about this convergence in the 1860s of housemanization, the renovation of the city, and the, the role that photography and photographs play at this incredibly pivotal moment in the 19th century. Right. So this first chapter is a behemoth. It <laughs> takes us from 1860 into the beginning of the 20th century. And what it's tracking is, is really what the, the title of the chapter says, is this interplay between the historical imagination and visual evidence. So what types of evidence are going to be used to tell the hist history of Paris? Uh, and so it begins with this moment of housemanization and early plans for the Musée Carnavale, which was supposed to be much more about housemanization than it ended up being. And thinking about how photographs kind of sit uncomfortably in those early plans for the museum and mm. also in its early iteration, I look at how photographs are facilitating many historical conversations. So if you look at the, the meetings for a number of city committees, you'll find that they're passing photographs around as they talk. And then I become interested in a series of individuals who are using images to tell history. So my first character who I'm interested in is Georges Camp, who's one of the directors of the Musée Carnavale, who, as I mentioned, is also a painter. And I'm interested in how he is producing historical reconstruction. So he's painting and using objects to inform that painting. But the document in his work is supposed to kind of spark all sorts of flights of imagination. Mm. And then I also worked on someone who overlaps with Caen for a number of years, who's Fedor Hofbauer, who I always pronounce as if he's German, but he is naturalized. He's a naturalized French citizen. And he is someone who created historical reconstructions that were understood as incredibly well documented at the time, which isn't to say that he was an, a witness of these events, but that he went back in the archives and read about them. And he looked at other pictures and he produced these images of what the past must have looked like. Hmm. And then the third character that I treat largely in this chapter is Marcel Poet, who I've also mentioned before. He becomes the director of Paris's historical library. And he is someone who is trying to teach historical methods to a very large public. So he's lecturing at the university level, but he's also teaching amateur historians how to use the library, how to distinguish between different types of evidence. And we see the photograph evolve in his thinking over the course of uh, several decades, where he thinks that the photograph is too cold, it's too precise to act on the historical imagination, to kind of later in his career when he starts to see in photographs of 19th century Paris a kind of haunting ghosts of the past and starts to think about them as perhaps documents that will 
one day act on the historical imagination. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. The First World War, Catherine, plays a kind of pivotal role in the book as a watershed moment. So how did the war reshape, I guess? I mean, we know that the war reshaped all kinds of affective dimensions of everyday and, and kind of larger scale life in France. But how did the experience of the war lead to or have an impact on what you describe as an emergent new mode, and I'm quoting you here, new mode of interpreting older photographs as a haunting slice of lost time and as a way of accessing the emotional trace of the past. So I, this is another one of the book's cliches, right? Like, of course, World War I changed many things. Uh, but for me, what, what I found is that most of my people who are interested in photos and are using them in photo histories in the teens, the 20s, they're using photographs as these one-to-one copies, as indexes of objects that exist in the world. And those objects are what are historical. So a photograph, for example, of Notre Dame is not useful to the historian as a, as a snapshot of Notre Dame in that moment, but it's just useful because the historian can then study the facade of Notre Dame from the comfort of their armchair. And then there's this new generation of collectors, amateur historians, and my two main characters here are Louis Charonnet and André Varnaud, who see in photographs something else, that what the photograph captures is this slice of lost time. And they are absolutely connected to a kind of generation of thinkers who are looking back on the period before the war and seeing a lost golden age. Mm. Louis Charnet, for example, creates this album of photographs called À Paris vers 1900, so in Paris towards 1900, where he wants to use visual evidence to look back and see what this, what this society, what this culture was like. And he uses photos to do that and talks about them as haunting because they show something that will never be regained again. There are these slices of the past. That was one of the most surprising things for me about the book. I thought that that idea of photographs as slices of time, I thought I would find that in the 19th century, and I really mm. didn't. And it seemed like people needed both for time to pass, so these photos looked old enough, but also to feel the sense of rupture and alienation from what was captured in the photographs in order to start to think about them in, in that way. I found this chapter so, and this idea so fascinating because I guess I, yeah, I mean, I'd never thought about the fact that, you know, it takes a while before photographs are old photographs. 
it seems yes. kind of duh, like, why didn't I think of that before? But I, it really took, thank you. It, it took the book to make me really think about how these, ob- as objects and as repositories of, you know, feeling and, and events from the past, that a, a five-year-old photograph isn't an old photograph yet, or it doesn't carry that historicity yet. It's not yet. And that's one of the things I think is was so interesting about working on this project is that it did seem like time was speeding up over the course of the 20th century. So it takes these guys, Chéronet and Varnot, like 40 years for uh, of time needs to have elapsed for them to think these photos are old. But by the time you get to the photo contest in 1970, it's C'était Paris en 1970. It's already the past imperfect tense. It's already past. So the, oh, right. the yeah. amount of time that needs to elapse before a photo is old, captures the past, is like a millisecond, whereas before it took decades. The third chapter of the book, Catherine, uh, is one in which you discuss the changes that take place during uh, the period of the Second World War, the and and how photographs interact with the histories of uh, and and kind of produce the histories of the occupation, the resistance, and the liberation of Paris. And you use this term, you coin this term. I think you coin this term. Um, I think repicturing. So tell us what repicturing is and why it's useful to you. So repicturing became a way for me to describe a practice by which. People were looking at one image, often photographic, and seeing through that image into or projecting onto it, if you want to to think about it that way, a history of other representations. So this I found being really explicitly taught in a series of books produced during the German occupation of Paris by one of the curators at the Musée Carnaval. His name is Jacques Wilhelm. And he said very explicitly in the introduction to the first one of these books, that a Parisian, quote unquote, worthy of the name would see images of the past overlaid in photographs of in, in photographs of the present or images of the present. So any historical moment bears in it the kind of seeds of all of these past moments or layers of these past moments. And I found this to be a very explicit kind of political resistance to the German occupation. So the book uses what look like contemporary photos and layers around them on the page, images of past Parisian revolutions. So you can see a picture of the Place Vendôme and know that the column there was toppled by the the participants in the Paris Commune. And it looked like a way of saying like the Germans are here and this is what Paris looks like right now. But all of this true essence of Paris is lying just underneath the surface. And we just need to remember to see right. it there in our imaginations. I just taught Catherine this um, seminar on, on the Second World War and, I, and wished at reading this chapter that I'd drawn on, <laughs> on it more. Because I was thinking about the moment when I showed, we, we talked about images of the resistance in the class. And I guess it's a, another, you know, cliche. I, I kind of feel like I don't want to use that word too many times in this conversation. <laughs> that the image of the resistance badass, you know, of men and women. And, you know, you talk in this chapter about these images of resistance figures holding, you know, weapons. Uh, and I, yeah, I was just really intrigued by this reading of the production of the resistance through images of the resistance that were, you know, staged. Yes. And I think even, so one of the arguments I make in this chapter, and this, I really, I have to say, I was very fortunate 
intellectually to publish this in the American Historical Review. And the process of revisions for that was tremendously helpful, really in clarifying kind of what I was getting at in, in looking at these photographs of the liberation. And I think what really had struck me looking at them is that it's not just that they're staged or not staged, but that the very act of building barricades in the streets in 1944 is already this kind of historical performance of what liberation should look like. And so you can make the argument that it's like militarily unnecessary. It's tactically useless. I don't think that I'm ready to say like the barricades didn't matter, but tanks could go through them. And so why build them? And you build them because that's what revolution looks like. And so there's already this sense, there's this kind of like way in which Parisians are inscribing themselves in the past and the present and the future as they build these barricades. And photographers are participating by taking and circulating photographs of them. And so, yeah, like the guy with the bandana and the pistol who looks like the American gangster who's posed on the barricades, or even the woman in, in the house coat, or there's one woman who's wearing uh, shorts throughout the liberation. And there are many photos of her because I think because she's wearing shorts, it's not just that the photographers understand them as being inscribed in a history of kind of Parisian types, but they already understand themselves in that way. And then the last part of this chapter is really about how those images circulate much more widely, right? What's the history of those photographs and where they go as they build a kind of myths and interpretations of the liberation. So the fourth chapter of the book, Catherine, deals with this 1951, 2000th anniversary or birthday of the city of Paris that you've mentioned a couple of times along the way. Um, So what what is so significant? Uh, I mean, obviously, the 2000th uh, birthday of Paris is significant. But how does this become a moment uh, that's so significant in the history of photography and the city? The Bimelinaire is so interesting in part because I think it is a self-conscious effort to mobilize Parisian history in order to rebuild the reputation of Paris after the war. 1951 is not the 2000th birthday of Paris. I mean, it's not even 2000 years technically after Julius Caesar entered Paris for the first time, which is what they thought they were commemorating. The wrath is off. Paris existed long before that. You could talk about many ways in which you could date the, the city of Paris. But 1951 is right after the war. It's the same year as the Festival of Britain, uh, which is right. taking place in a huge location on South Bank in London, and as well as all over the British Isles. And it, it is conceived of as an opportunity to celebrate Paris, to bring tourists to Paris, to bring money to Paris. Now, what's so interesting is the Festival of Britain is like future looking, space age. It's about the future, whereas this celebration is says that Paris is great because it's old and so many things have happened here. So it's a way in which the very identity of Paris post-war, it becomes tied up inextricably in this sense of the past. So the very idea of the Bimelinaire is interesting in that sense, but it also affords an opportunity to look at a large concentration of historical products produced for, of kind of histories of the city produced for the occasion. So in this chapter, I talk about more photo histories. I talk about photo books, kind of authored photo books and the way in which they're thinking through time in this summer. I talk about uh, press coverage. I talk about posters. Um, I look at, as I mentioned before, William Wallace, who's one of the Americans who comes for this, the celebrations of the Bimelinaire. He's 
brought on the French dime to be part of this. And one of the things that really struck me in looking at all of these images and and products is that images don't, and often not photos, don't even need to be old anymore. They can just be mimicking old styles in order to have the kind of past woven into them. You make the point, Catherine, that photography becomes the dominant medium by the mid-century. And I'm just wondering about other media along the way. Film is the obvious thing for me to ask you about, uh, but also, well, eventually television, but radio too. Like how, how do the different audiovisual media interact and what is the distinctive history of photography from some of these other media? I know that's a huge question, but if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a question that I thought about again and again working on this project. So I think film absolutely is a very clear point of comparison. If you think about film in the 1950s, a lot of French film in the 1950s is about reconstructing visions of the past. If you think about the American musicals uh, set in France in the 60s, a lot of them are about the American in Paris. It's all about reconstructing a kind of red book. And I found evidence of my the books, the photo histories that I'm interested in being used in Hollywood studios in order to reconstruct Paris in the studio. Um, so huh. I was a graduate student at USC and some, I, some of these books, as I was checking them out from the library, I saw had been donated from, I forget which studio, Paramount, let's say. Um, so they used to be part of their work, like study collection. And film is kind of all around the edges of this project. So to go back to the first chapter, at the same time that people are interested in forming uh, photo collections, there is a municipal councillor who really wants the city to collect films of Paris because these are the history of the city and they need to have a cinematheque of the city of Paris that would allow them to tell that story. People are ascribing some of the same capacities to film as there are in photographs. I think what's different for me and one of the reasons why I didn't work extensively on film is that it's so much less accessible in this period to your average person. Mm. So anyone could own a kind of cheap pamphlet of photos of the liberation. It's a much bigger investment and a much harder thing to have film that you can watch at home. So the way the historical imagination is being formulated in a kind of ubiquitous way, I don't think photography, I think photography is the thing that's doing that. That said, radio is, this was your other question. Yeah. And Radio is absolutely has this kind of evocative sense. Like if you hear recordings of Edith Piaf, for example, like that is haunting in the same way that old photographs are haunting. And there are things like recordings of not, they're not actual recordings, but but like reenactments of the liberation of Paris that are sold afterwards that people can listen to them on their record players. Um, And I think that is one of the things I would have spent more time thinking about and comparing the kind of radiophonic historiography uh, and the photographic historiography if I were to do the book again. But all I can say <laughs> for now is that it's a great question. And I hope that someone someday will tell me, like, does what I found map onto a kind of history of radiophonic historiography in, in this period? You begin the book, Catherine, and then this fifth chapter comes back to the 1970 competition, this amateur photography competition. And I love this this phrase in the title, the assassination of Paris. So uh, I want to know more about the contest and why it's so significant. And then, yeah, why the assassination of Paris? So the assassination of Paris is from Louis Chevalier 
in his book, The Assassination of Paris, in which he tries to figure out what happened. How was Paris so radically destroyed, rebuilt in the 1950s and 60s without anyone saying, hey, wait a minute, stop, we need to do this in a, in a more kind of discerning way in order not to destroy a lot of what makes Paris, Paris. And he talks about having had his eyes filled with pictures of Paris and been unable to see what was actually happening in the city. So the contest was conceived of in 1970. It's first a project by one of the mayors of, of one of Paris's arrondissements, so kind of sections. Uh, and then it becomes a full project carried out on all of Paris, so the whole of the city of Paris. And the idea of C'était Paris en 1970 is that Paris is changing. We need to get photographs of it before it's too late. And the, one of the people who helps sort out what the contest will look like is actually the director of the Bibliothèque Historique de la Ville de Paris. His name is Henri de Sererie de Saint-Rémy, uh, which is one of my favorite French names to have to pronounce. Uh, and he <laughs> is really interested in how photography has not been necessarily the boon for the documentation of the city that you would think it is. And he thinks of this contest as a way to produce a better photographic record of the city. In order to do so, the organizers divide the city up into 1,755 squares. They're 250 meters on a side. And they assign the contestants to the squares. They're, it's done by a kind of lottery system. And each participant has to fully document that square during the month of May. Some people do this better than others. Of course, many people never turn in photos at all. Uh, some people take hundreds of photos in, in the square on different days at different times of day. There are people who get up high and take the kind of panorama and then they go down and they document street by street, building by building, commerce by commerce. They take pictures of signs. They take pictures wow. of architectural details. They take pictures of people. It's just this incredible mass of images. And I really have to say, I probably over the course of working on this, I looked at 13,000 hmm. images. I'm not sure exactly what I better, I calculated it better in the book. So it might be 14,000, but I only, I looked at, I looked at over 10, just over 10%. I didn't even look wow. at 20% of these images. So I had to figure out a kind of sampling system in order to deal with them. And I sampled by the nature of the neighborhood. So I looked at squares in neighborhoods that weren't changing at all in 1970. I looked at squares in neighborhoods that had changed a lot I looked at squares in neighborhoods that were bourgeois or that were poor or had large immigrant populations that were well-connected in the kind of network of tourist sites in Paris or that weren't. Uh, I looked at squares that had factories in them. The Citroën factories are still within the city limits at that time and tried to get a sense of different spaces within the, within the city and most importantly, how people are choosing to document them. Mm. This was the beginning point of the project. It also started to feel like the culmination of the project because all of the various modes of photographic history that I had identified in the earlier research, I saw again here layered one on top of the other. Um, so I saw people who were really interested in architectural fragments. They're looking for what is already passed within the city. Um, at the same time, I found people who were almost ethnographers or anthropologists who were looking for what of the present moment would soon be gone. Like what moment of time could they capture right now? How are people dressed? What do the advertisements look like? What is passing? 
And then I also found all these photos that projected ideas of what the future mm. in Paris would look like. So Paris with cars and high-speed expressways along the Seine, uh, Paris with tall buildings. And a lot of these people just took the photos. Some of them wrote captions on the back and, and talked about what was being lost uh, or celebrated what was being gained as Paris was changing in this moment. I'm thinking to ask you this question now, Catherine, but I, I could have asked you at any point along the way, I guess, how this project that emphasizes street photography is riven through with the gender, class, and racial histories of the capital. Yeah, this is something that really came up for me in the contest photos, uh, but also throughout the book. There, I don't have a lot of women in this book. Uh, my actors are male. They're mostly white because that's who had access to the institutions, that's who worked in these institutions, that is who had money to be photo collectors. Those are the people who are making this history. And then the photo contest happens and there aren't a lot of women and non-white people or people of, from all different walks of life in this chapter, but there are more than anywhere else. And so the FNAC actually kept really good statistics about these people. And so I could know things like the majority of them are under 30. Huh. Well, if you're under 30 in 1970 and you're interested in Paris, like chances are you might have been on the streets in 1968. Uh, so that was interesting to me. There are not a lot of women. It's not a majority of women. It's not even half and half women, but there are some women. And because the photos are cataloged by square, but the participants had to write their participant numbers on the back, I could find those participant numbers in the registers that the FNAC kept and see that what are women taking photos of? Um, what are people who live in Sarcelles, for example, in some of the really, uh, at this time, suburbs that are where in which huge towers are going up um, and in which a lot of people who had been living in poverty within the city limits are being moved out to these suburbs? What are they taking pictures of? I could track people by address and say, like, this person living on this street in 1970 in the 16th, they're probably mm. pretty wealthy, um, and start to get a sense of a historical record that's being produced, not just through a kind of monofocal lens, mm. if you will. And those don't always, they don't always map onto anything super significant. Um, but for example, I mentioned people who only took pictures of architectural details, one of those people who took 700 photos of architectural details in one square in the Marais lived in the Marais. And someone else in that square who took pictures of workers and construction sites lived in one of the outlying huh. suburbs. So is that just that these two photographers were interested in different things? Or does it have to do with their kind of class positions? I can only guess either way. The conclusion of the book, Catherine, takes on the sort of last period of the of the 20th century and you bring up the Vidéothèque de Paris um, in, in, this, uh, in these last comments and thoughts. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening there and how you close the book? The conclusion ends with the Vidéothèque de Paris, which is a video archive of the history of Paris that opens in Les Halles in 1988. And it just, for me, it operates as this culmination of, of a history of preservation linked to destruction, preservation and images linked to destruction, so it opens in the shopping mall that's built at the site of the former markets of Leal. And it is meant to, in some way, fill the hole 
that has been created. It's meant to say like we're preserving images, we're preserving not only preserving images, but preserving them in new high tech ways that will be available to everyone. But the dream of the videotech was not just to create an archive where people could go, but that the videotech would be available via Minitel and cable to users all over France. Clearly that never happens Mm. for a variety of reasons, but the videotech was supposed to make a new form of visual history available to the masses in the same way that kind of preserving images, making municipal archives, uh, having free classes in Parisian history at the Bibliothèque Historique, having exhibitions that people could go to at the Musée Carnavalet, all of this was supposed to do the same thing over a century earlier. So the videotech, Mm -hmm. even though it's not photographs, really fit for me in ending this story, that it needed this new high-tech version of this dream needed to be what tied the book together, I think, at the end. So, Catherine, I want to ask you about the kind of post- history that's covered in the book and ask if you have any thoughts on what social media platforms have done to the intersection between the history of photography and the history of the city. They have made it easier to make and circulate images. Um, And so I think you see a lot of the phenomena that I'm interested in this book of photographs being evocative romantic documents, of photographs being something that's used to measure time. Uh, something we haven't talked about yet is that the I read about the first re-photography projects in this in this book. So re-photography is something that's often thought of as originating in the American West uh, mm. in the 1980s, where you take an old photograph and you find the exact position from which that photo was taken and you take a photograph of the new scene and you can put them together and kind of measure time in a way. And that's something you see all the time on social media where people put two images on top of each other, use a slider to slide back and right. forth between them, or people will hold up a photograph into the exact same location uh, and then take another picture of that. So you have this kind of snapshot of time residing in it. But I think that if anything, that digital and social media has made history more and more photographic. The thing that's recently struck me most in reading the book, I was thinking back to, well, back just you know a couple of months to the proliferation of images of Notre Dame uh, during and just after the fire, uh, just even on my own very limited, you know, social media <laughs> presence, how much, uh, how, how many images there were circulating of the fire, but then also how it became this opportunity for people to then post. Like, I mean, I'm only on Twitter and Instagram, but all of these images, I mean, I think I did it, historic images of Notre Dame, but then also their own visits. I just wonder, yeah, what would Catherine Clark say about all of that? <laughs> Well, I would say that traumatic and disruptive events in the city change how we mm. see old photographs. They make us want to to preserve what has happened in images. Why, you know, people take photographs for all sorts of reasons, but why did we go back to the archive and drag up old photos? I did it. I posted photos of Notre Dame on social media, and it's in part it's because those things right. take on new meaning, uh, and and we see them differently when what was in them is is no longer there. And so I think that. It's absolutely an example of something I trace over the course of this book, that when things happen in the city that feel disruptive and traumatic, we go back to old pictures as a meaning, as a way of holding on to the past, as a way of 
finding new interpretations and new stories that tell us about what the city is going through today. Well, Catherine, I've got one last question for you, which is what are you working on now? So I am working on some entirely new things. Uh, I have a kind of back project about commercial street photographers that has been Mm -hmm. brewing for a while that I kind of dip my toes in and out of every now and then. So I'm interested in the people. If this book is all about street photography, it is about street photography produced by professionals and amateurs. I'm interested in the people who took your picture unsolicited on the street, handed you a ticket, and then you could go to the photographer's stand later that day or the next and buy your picture from them. And I'm interested in how they disrupt notions of copyright of professionalization in the middle of the 20th century, and actually have published a little bit already on how they um, they are being removed from the streets of Paris in the mm. 50s and 60s, and what that means about notions of who can be a professional photographer and what does it mean to take photographs in public. Um, so I'm interested in that questions of kind of photographic rights, the right to take photographs, and that I'm exploring via that. And then I am also uh, thinking about China actually, and working on a project about the ways in which the French have been fascinated with China in in the 20th century. So that's a story that's often been written through the lens of diplomatic history or the intellectuals who become Maoists, uh, especially those who become Maoists in the early 1970s. And I am thinking about, through kind of both research and public and private archives, how China is represented in France, like what's the image of China that's Mm. produced in France once China becomes communist, but also how that image, if you will, a kind of metaphorical image is once again related to physical images and to pictures that are produced. And also how China becomes a kind of problem of representation for the French people who go. So when scholars write about the Maoists, one of their central questions or something that kind of lingers on the edges of what they write about is how could they be so duped? by the communist regime? Like how could they have thought that communist China was this promised land? And I'm interested in how the problem of representation that's at the very heart of that question, like how can you see and how can you not see and how can you represent what Mm. you are seeing? Um, And China seems like an interesting and good place to be doing that. So if I thought about how you access the past in this past project, I'm thinking about how do you access somewhere that's far away and hard to access and feels very foreign for much of the much of the 20th century. And that once again involves a linguistic problem and I am learning Mandarin to do that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so we shall see. That sounds super compelling and I hope you'll keep me updated about it. Um Catherine, I just want to I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing this book. Thank you Roxanne. Thanks for having me on the podcast. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network. Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.